0: So I'm going to ask you to stretch back in your minds this morning and ask you to kind of consider where were you on the morning of March 16th, 1968? (laughs) (laughs) Some of you weren't even here. You remember where you were? Me neither. There's a handful of men that will never forget where they were. In his book, The Quest for Character, Chuck Swindoll describes the events of that particular morning. When Charlie Company moved nervously into the Milai region that morning, they were discovered not a single combatant there. Nobody was armed. No one fired on them. There were only unarmed women, children, and old men. The things that then occurred are somewhat unclear no one can reproduce the exact order of events but neither can anyone deny the tragic results that between 500 and 600 Vietnamese were killed now I'm gonna spare you the graphic details of all of that the end result now part of tragic history of that war was that although the numbers of soldiers directly involved can only be estimated about 200 men witnessed that atrocity and eventually 25 of which were charged, of whom only six went to trial, and in the end only one was convicted, Lieutenant William L. Calley, Jr. Many more were, however, guilty of a crime. The failure to report a crime is itself a crime. And in the year that followed, not one of about 500 men in Task Force Barker that had knowledge of these crimes ever attempted to report the horrible events, not even one of them. Now, it's not my desire to sit in judgment of these men, but to use this as an illustration, as did Chuck Swindoll, to point out a phenomenon which has been called psychic numbing, which often occurs in group situations. It is an emotional and a moral anesthesia which allows people in a group to commit and condone horrendous acts and seemingly have no conscience about it. What it illustrates is the extreme and the potential danger of peer pressure. Someone has said that the smirks or shouts of the majority have a way of intimidating integrity. That's true, isn't it? When group numbing walks in the door, personal integrity usually flies out the window. And the scary thing is is that it can happen to anyone, even you and me. We can find ourselves caught up in the pressure of the crowd and find ourselves, even in the church, quenching the spirit, ignoring our conscience, and losing our moral compass, compass quietly accepting, for example, the culture's views on things like abortion, homosexuality, immorality, adultery, etc., etc., etc. What we desperately need to maintain, however, in the midst of the pressure is our spiritual bearings. Amen? Our spiritual integrity, it must remain intact. Our commitment to follow Christ should reflect this attitude. Whether or not anyone else is doing what is right, I will. Regardless of what it costs, regardless of how it feels, regardless of who is listening. Jesus had the kind of integrity that did not succumb to group numbing. Jesus was a thermostat, not a thermometer. Okay, you understand the difference? Rather than reflect the climate of his surroundings, he influenced it. Which metaphor describes your life, really? if you were to think about it. When you're in a group of friends or co-workers, are you the spiritual thermostat in the situation or a thermometer? Do you exude an influence over the spiritual climate of the people that you hang out with, or are you simply a reflection of what's going on in that group? the answer to that question is going to reveal a whole lot about our integrity as people, as Christians. And what Paul is saying here in the next section that we're going to look at today is that a Christ-like pattern of life exudes integrity. It exudes integrity. That's the message Paul wants to get to us today. So if you're in Philippians, look at chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 16 this morning. 14 to 16. Let me read them for you, Philippians two fourteen to sixteen. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, you could stop right there, couldn't we? That's enough. It's enough for today. You're looking out the window and you see the snow. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Right. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you should appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. It's just going to stop right there. You know what the word exudes means? It means to ooze out and spread out in all directions. It means to display something conspicuously. In other words, when your life exudes spiritual integrity, it attracts attention. It's noticeable by somebody. And it has influence over people and situations. It doesn't go with the flow when the flow is going wrong, but redirects the flow. That's the kind of Christ followers Paul wanted the Philippians to be. That's the kind of disciples that Jesus desires us to be, right? What does spiritual integrity look like in practical terms? Paul's going to unveil a few aspects of it that we just read about. To begin with, it's up close and personal. Paul says that it starts in our very attitudes. Secondly, he says it's upright and practical. In other words, it influences others. It's just not some theoretical thing. It actually actually has effect. And finally, it's upheld and powerful. We hold it forth, and it has power to affect people. Why? Because it's based on truth. It's based on truth. So let's take a look at Paul's charge to be a people of integrity. And the first one is, let's look at this aspect of integrity up close and personal. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You can't get much more personal than that, can you? He gets straight to the heart of the matter in this. If there's an area in which we can get sucked into group numbing, it's the area of complaining, isn't it? Complaining and grumbling. Incredibly contagious this murmuring is, isn't it? Even the word has a negative, repetitive sound to it, right? Murmuring. You know how it works. You begin to slip into the murmur mode by complaining about one little thing. And before you know it, your entire life is like one bad dream. Right? Am I right? story is told of a monk named Brother John. Brother John entered the Monastery of Silence. And the abbot there said, Brother, this is a silent monastery. You are welcome here as long as you like. But you may not speak until I direct you to do so. So Brother John lived in the monastery for five years before the abbot said to him, Brother John, you have been here five years now. You may speak two words. Brother John said, hard bed. (laughs) I'm sorry to hear that, the abbot said. We'll get you a better bed. So after another five years in, in this monastery, Brother John was called by the abbot again, and he said, you may say another two words. You've been here 10 years. You can say another two, year, two words. Brother John said, cold food. And the abbot assured him that the food would be better in the future. On his 15th anniversary at the monastery, the abbot again called Brother John into his office, and he says, Brother John, two words you may say today. I quit, said Brother John. (laughs) To this the abbot replied, John, it's probably best because you've done nothing but complain since you got here. (laughs) Notice Paul's charge here. He doesn't say don't grumble, right? He doesn't say don't grumble. That's what you and I would say. He says, do everything without it. He he puts a positive spin on it. He says, do everything without grumbling or disputing. No exceptions. When Paul says do, he means to execute something, perform it, practice it, fulfill it. It's a potent little word in a present tense command, which means that we are to be making a habit of this. The emphasis here is on the word everything or all things, depending upon what translation you have. How important is that to Paul? Well, let's see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, Paul says, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Right? In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17 and in verse 23. Paul writes, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. See, this do everything without grumbling and disputing is a major thing with Paul. In everything you do, Paul says, stay away from complaining and arguing. Just kind of stay away from it. That's the way the New Living Translation translates it. Now, is that possible for any of us, do you think? I mean, most of us are able to do some things without complaining. The difficulty comes when we're asked to do all things with a joyful and a grateful attitude, right? But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does more than just ask. He commands. The words grumbling here means to utter secret and sullen discontent. You know what it means. I really don't have to define it for you. But in the, in the, in the original languages, it was used to describe the cooing of doves. You know what that sounds like? Picture it in your ears. You ever been around a parking lot full of pigeons at McDonald's or something like that in the summertime? That undertone of noise they make as they fight each other for the stray French fries in the parking lot? That's the sound of crowd murmuring. That's the sound of, of, of birds murmuring. I never get the biggest one. I work my tail off all day long and I can't even get a decent meal. Wah, 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 call the wambulence. right? That's just what we sound like, isn't it? It's that subtle undertone of discontentment and complaint that goes on in many churches all the time. The I call it the whining and dining syndrome, and I mean whining as in w-h-i-n-i-n-g. The people who do most of the complaining and whining are usually the ones who come into, into the church as a consumer. They want to simply dine. They come, they sit, they listen, they go. And they want it served their way. And if it isn't, the whining starts. Do we ever listen to ourselves complain? I don't like the food. I'm sick of the heat. I hate the snow. I'm tired of the same old clothes. Boy, am I tired of you telling me what to do. And in church, it's not much different. The music's too loud. It's too soft. Not enough hymns. Too many hymns. It's too showy. Not, it's too sloppy. It's too fast. It's too slow. The service is too long. The pews are too hard. The chairs are too soft. Kids are too loud. Parking lot's too full. The drive is too long. Wah, wah, wah. Call the wambulance.) We say we're unhappy with our circumstances, but you know what the real problem is, don't you? We're unhappy ultimately with God. That's the bottom line. In our complaining, it's really against him. We're not happy with the situation that he's placed us in. In the New Testament, the word grumbling is predominantly used for evil thoughts and anxious reflection or doubt. In the Old Testament, it was used to describe the murmurings of Israel against God. Friends, grumbling is one of the first indications of a backslidden heart. It is. It's a, it's a telltale sign. We may defend ourselves by saying we don't actually complain against God directly, but that's exactly what it is. Turn, hold your finger in Philippians 2. Turn back to the Old Testament to Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. Talking about Israel wandering in the desert now, okay? Verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, what's it say? Grumbled. Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. Verse 7. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against who? Against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us, Moses said. Verse uh, Chapter 17, look at verse 1. 1 to 3. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Now it's not just grumblings, but it's disputings, right? Quarrels. They quarreled with Mo- Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test who? The Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Move ahead to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1 now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the, out, uh, some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat in Egypt, the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and the garlic, but they conveniently forgot about all the whippings and the beatings and the slavery and the torture that they had, right? But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna, Wow, wow, wow." Call the ambulance. <laughs> Verse 18. Say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat and you... for you have wept in the, in the years of the Lord saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat for we were well off in Egypt. Yeah, right. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat. Not one day, not two days. Not five days, not 10 days, not 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Careful what you ask for. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. See that? You have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? This is nasty stuff here. Look at chapter 14. Again, then the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? This was the whole issue, you know, with them. God wasn't necessarily mad at the complaining, God was upset with them because they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted their old life instead of what God had planned for them in the new world. And so they complained. Verse 11 the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn? What's it say? You? No, me. How long will they spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Skip down to verse 20. Moses interceded for them. And the Lord, unbelievably so, said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them who spurned me see it. Verse 27, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? grumbling against the Lord. The whole generation, a whole generation was kept from entering the promised land because of this sin that Paul's talking about. What might you and I be kept from if we sin in this way? What blessings of the Lord are we missing out on when we continually throw in his face that we're not happy with our lot in life? You know, 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 all about this stuff, and he applies it to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul says, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 9, don't let, don't let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're no different than they were. So learn the lesson, Paul says. Someone has accurately said, nothing is easier than fault-finding. No talent, no self-denial, no brains, no character are required to set up in the grumbling business. You can start a whole business doing it. But Paul's no fool. He knows that grumbling is only the beginnings. He says, disputes follow. That word is the word from which we get our English word, dialogue. Dialogue. And what it really refers to is the questions and the disputes we begin to engage in internally as we begin to question God and his wisdom. And it it flows out to other people. And and it spreads like wildfire, And that's the kind of thing that causes divisions both in our minds and eventually in the church, right? That's why Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because just previous to this, he was talking about unity, humility. He knows what's going to take place. Grumbling and disputing represent moral and intellectual rebellion against God, which leads to a splintered church. They're the character traits of those who are not being led by the Spirit. Not being led by the Spirit. Turn to Jude. Believe it or not, this is one of the verses that led me to Christ. Out of all the verses in the Scripture, my my wife came to Jesus before I did, nine months before I did, and she had this little subtle way of witnessing to me. It wasn't overt. She wouldn't complain at me. She wouldn't just, you know, point the finger at me all the time, but she'd do little things like leaving her Bible open to certain pages on the table in the kitchen. So I'd happen across it. This happened to be one of the days where the Bible was opened. And I happened to come across this verse, these verses in Jude, verse 16. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, and what it says there, devoid of the Spirit. Now, she didn't leave it open for that verse for me. I don't even remember where the Bible was open, but I happened to turn to this and read that, and those verses spoke of me and it made me think all you do is walk around here and complain all day long you mock your wife's faith and you're following after your own ungodly lusts and you don't have the spirit of God living in you well that was one step in the direction which led me to Christ but you see where it starts grumblings, disputings This word disputing also has a legal connotation to it. It may reflect the prevalent practice in their day, even as ours, of Christians suing one another. Litigation. It disgusted Paul, and I believe it's equally disgusting to God. In 1 Corinthians again, chapter 6, Paul talks about it. Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. You see where it leads to? Grumbling, disputing, divisions, even into law courts. Is it any wonder that those outside the church are a little sketchy about joining up sometimes? The way many Christians act today, it's a clear indication that the idea that Paul talks about all through this book up till now about humility, unity, fulfilling our responsibility to love one another and the importance of personal spiritual integrity seem like completely foreign concepts to the church. Paul is saying that if we're going to convince people out there that a relationship with Christ is the best thing that they could ever have, then our lives must exude a spiritual integrity of the most crucial form, up close and personal. And it begins in the heart, and then it spills over into the attitude. We want Christ in us to get all over them, right? Up close and personal. But it doesn't end there. Never does. Personal integrity translates into practical purity. Paul continues by indicating that spiritual integrity is more than just up close and personal, but it's also upright and practical. Look at verse 15 of Philippians 2. Paul says in in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. There's a reason that Paul exhorts us to maintain personal integrity. It proves something to the world. It provides something to the world. Maintaining our personal integrity proves that Christ really does live within us and that he can change people and help them to stand firm and strong against the midst of a crooked world. And in so doing, that provides a beacon of light to those who are lost and groping around in the dark. Notice at the end of verse 15, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here's Paul's threefold practical description of someone who exhibits Spiritual integrity. Number one, they are unblamed in the sight of their peers. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. It literally means without defect. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you've been chosen by Christ to become blameless? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 says, May he, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again with all his holy people. Amen. Now you're saying, that's ridiculous. Nobody's perfect. How can you be blameless? Well, it's true. Nobody is perfect. But God is in the process of sanctifying us. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago? That working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That process of sanctification. In other words, he's working out the bugs in us. And it's that tandem thing that's going on. He's working in us. We're obeying and working it out. Becoming blameless. We're supposed to be complying, right? Working with him. By allowing him to work in us. Look at verses 12 and 13 one more time. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How many of us are really doing that? You know, how many? How many? We come, to, we come to Christ, we get our foot in the door, and we think, that's great. That's good enough. But being a Christ follower is not about figuring out how to manage our sin. It's about letting Christ rip it out of us. Wherever did we get the idea that we should accept the fact that we're sinners saved by grace and just go on living like that? That's true, we are sinners saved by grace, but that's not, the Bible doesn't teach us to stay in that mode. We are sinners saved by grace, but if the grace of Christ is at work in us, sin will become less and less dominant in us and less and less palatable to us. Listen, I'll make this statement. If you can live, if I can live comfortably with sin, we're not living for Christ and you're not allowing Christ to live in you. If you can live comfortably with your sin, you're not living for Christ, and you're not allowing Christ to live in you. But is that what we're learning as disciples of Christ? This is what discipleship is all about. Right? Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ Yet not, uh, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the only Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, 1 to 7 talks about no longer presenting your members or your body to sin as if you were enslaved to it. This is what discipleship is about. It's about working out that salvation. Now, if we're not learning these things, then we are essentially practicing a form of non-discipleship. Have you ever heard that term before? Non-discipleship. Dallas Willard once referred to non-discipleship as the elephant in the church. He says in his book, Divine Conspiracy, Sometime back, a drug rehabilitation program ran an interesting commercial that showed an elephant walking around in an ordinary home, going by the sun, doing homework, the wife washing dishes, and so forth. Everyone studiously tries to ignore the elephant, but it is obviously the biggest thing around the house. And he says, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. And this is how he describes it. He says, It's not the much discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non Christians. That's not the elephant in the room. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. He says, And it is the accepted reality. Which has worked its way into the very heart of the gospel message. It is now understood to be a part of the good news that one does not have to be a life student of Jesus in order to be a Christian and receive forgiveness of sin. This gives a precise meaning, he says, to the phrase cheap grace. Though it would be better described, he says, as costly faithlessness. These are strong words. But he's right on the mark, isn't he? Jesus wants us to appear in the world, it says here in Philippians 2, as blameless and beyond reproach. They should have no cause to believe or level any charge of wrongdoing or character deficiency against us unless it involves our unshakable commitment to Christ. And we have a supremely relevant example of that, don't we, in the Scripture. Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. Is a perfect example of that in verses 4 and 5. Let me read it to you. Then the commissioners and the satraps began to try to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. And this is what it says. You should underline this. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. You know what they were saying? Basically, they're saying the only way that we're going to catch this guy doing something illegal is if we make something illegal that he's supposed to be doing for God. And in that case, it was Praying. And Daniel disobeyed the government because he believed that God wanted him to pray even though they made an edict not to do it. That's the only way that they could find something corrupt in him. Are there any Daniels left in the world today? Is that what you and I aspire to be? I hear so much excusing of sin. I I do it myself. But I find no scriptural precedent for that. None. None. Paul says, "Be unblamed in the sight of your peers." Next thing he says is, "We're un, somebody of spiritual integrity is unmixed in the depths of our hearts." Verse fifteen again: Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. It means pure, harmless. The Greek word was used to denote undiluted wine or metal that had no alloys to decrease its strength. It means unadulterated with any foreign matter. In other words, we're to be pure in our hearts, Paul says. Innocent of evil, uncorrupted by the world. Jesus sends his disciples into a cruel and corrupt world, but they are to remain innocent and pure. Remember in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. What's the state of your heart today? Is it unmixed, or is there a kind of religious vinyl siding over a worldly framework of rotting walls? That's what the Pharisees had, remember? Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Many a professing Christian life, wrote Alexander McLaren, has a veneer of godliness nailed nailed thinly over a solid bulk of selfishness. Now that's not integrity, Paul says. That's hypocrisy. Jesus had no place for hypocrisy. Read Matthew chapter 23. He pronounces all kinds of woes on the hypocrites. He didn't pronounce those on the people that knew they were sinners and came to him for help. He pronounced that on the Pharisees who thought they were not sinning, but they had sin harbored in their hearts. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As children of God, Paul says here in Philippians, verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul says, be unblamed in the sight of your peers, unmixed in the depths of your hearts, and thirdly, unblemished in the sight of this world, in the midst of this world. Verse 15 again, be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. See, we're in the thick of it, my friends. We are in the thick of it, aren't we? In the world, but not of it, Jesus said. In the midst of all the corruption, we need to keep clean. Is that even possible? If you believe in Jesus, it is. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again and now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us every single moment of every single day, it's possible. Paul in Ephesians 5 says that one day Jesus is going to present to himself, us, his bride, as pure, spotless, blameless, wrinkle-free. Is that right? And he paid the price for that. In Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the reason that he died and reconciled us to God, to present us holy and blameless. And then he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. continuance, is the test of genuineness. Maintaining spiritual integrity in the midst of a disfigured and distorted world is difficult, but friends, it is not impossible because of Jesus Christ. Paul describes this world as what? Look at it in verse 15. What are the words he uses there? Crooked and perverse. The world is crooked in the sense that it always turns from the path of truth. Interesting where we get this word, what, what comes out of this word. The word crooked in the original language is where we get our English word scoliosis. Ever seen someone with extreme scoliosis? Their spine is very crooked, which causes disfigurement. It's an apt word to describe the world in which we live. Moses even used the same word picture to describe his generation. In Deuteronomy 32, in verse 5, Moses said, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted. They are a crooked and twisted generation. See, we live in a disfigured and distorted society, don't we? And the word perverse here is in verse 15 is much stronger even than the word crooked. It describes this twisted nature of our world pointing to an abnormal moral condition. And the Philippians lived in the midst of a disfigured and distorted world and so do you and I. Very relevant. Paul says that we should appear to, to others in this society as lights in their dark world. Lights in their dark world. The word is literally luminaries. To appear as luminaries in the world, in the dark world. That word was used of the heavenly bodies that give light in the darkness of night back in the Old Testament in Genesis when God said, Let there be lights or luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. What was their purpose? to distinguish night from day, dark from light, to give men their bearings when they navigated, as well as to be signs of judgment. That's what Christ followers are supposed to be, Paul says. In the middle of a spiritually distorted and disfigured world of moral darkness, Christ followers, that's you and me, are to stand out as the stars at midnight. We have the light of the world in residence. Let it shine without its obstruction. That's what we should be doing. That's what Ma- I-, I believe another word picture that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, you let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. F.B. Meyer put it, he reminds us, he says, we don't ignite the flame, supply the oil, or trim the wick. Our simple duty is to guard against anything that might obstruct the outshining of the glory of God from our souls. Integrity needs to be seen, Paul says, in this world. Yours and mine, it needs to be seen. It needs to be seen up close and personal, upright and practical, and finally, it needs to be upheld and powerful. Verse 16, before we close, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. In order for us to glow and shine as lights, we must first be exposed to the light. That's how spiritual integrity works, right? In order to be visible in a dark world, Christ followers must continually be exposing ourselves to the light source. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Christ is the life. He's the light of life. He's the word of life. And the Bible is the revelation of that word. How can you keep your life pure? The psalmist answered that question. Remember? Psalm 119.9, by keeping it according to this word. Shining your light requires constant exposure to the word. We need to hold this word in high regard, amen? Why? Because it tells us the truth. The truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about our relationship to God. I once read an intriguing chapter about truth-telling. It grabbed my attention so immediately that I decided to share a portion with you. It begins with the premise that there is a foundational paradox common to all human beings in this world. We want to know the truth about ourselves, and we want very much not to know the truth about ourselves. Correct? We both seek and resist awareness about the reality of who we are. Case in point, and the author gives an illustration, start with the truth about our bodies. Maybe we shouldn't start there. We buy scales and mirrors, right, and pants with measured waists to tell us the truth about the condition of our bodies, and then we avoid, argue with, or get rid of them when we don't like the truth they tell us. (laughs) Is that right? The problem with a scale is that it's hard to finesse. You know, you can't finesse the scale. We try, many people, particularly people of a certain gender that shall remain nameless, (laughs) approach a scale with extreme caution. They take off their shoes before they get on it. In many cases, they want as much privacy as a confessional booth. They will only get on during a certain time of the day, usually in the morning before having eaten and after having gone to the bathroom. They remove whatever clothing they may be wearing, as well as jewelry, hair accessories, loose tooth fillings, and heavy lipstick before they get on. They exhale before looking at the numbers. It turns out experts tell us that scales are not the most accurate tools to reveal the truth about our physical condition. Good news, perhaps we're in better shape than we thought. Not far from our house, the author says, is a facility that for a modest fee will measure the fat, fat content in your body by having you expel all the breath out of your body and sit in a chair underwater until you can see an image of Jesus coming at the end of the <laughs> long white tunnel. Ken Davis says that he invented a less expensive, free method for measuring fat content. This is Ken's way of doing it. Next time you get out of the shower, grab a stopwatch, stand in front of a full length mirror totally naked, start the watch and stamp your foot on the floor as hard as you can and when stuff stops moving, (laughs) punch the watch and check the time. Ken says I'm down to two days, three hours, and six minutes. <laughs> if we try to finesse the scales. We try to finesse mirrors, too. Savvy department stores have people try on clothes in front of mirrors where the lighting is so dim that customers can't see any blemishes or wrinkles at all, and in fact, they can barely make out their own features. The goal is to convince them that the clothes have smoothed their complexion and taken years off their appearance. And our clothes. They try to tell us the truth about our bodies, but we find ways around that as well. Clever marketeers now sell clothes with wonderful euphemisms like relaxed fit. (laughs) Relaxed fit jeans. Skinny jeans. What's the matter with the old Levi's? Were they really tense all those years that they need to be relaxed now? The idea is that the fabric is so relaxed that it can be worn by someone two or three sizes larger than the one printed on the label. One entrepreneur said he was going to start a store store called Size 2 and have every garment in the place up to the size of a pup tent say Size 2 on it, on the label, going by the theory that women don't care what size their clothes really are as long as the number on the label is small. Scales and mirrors, tools of accountability. They tell us about reality. And we can try to outsmart them if we want to, but if we allow them to, they will reveal the truth. Amen? Your Bible is a tool of accountability. The The tool of accountability, a place to look in the mirror and stand on the scale spiritually. It tells the truth. That's why Paul advocates that as a matter of integrity, we need to expose ourselves to it. He says three things. He says, hold it fast. Hold fast the word. Cling to it. Immerse yourself in it. Meditate on it. Ingest it. Don't just put it in your head. It must become part of your DNA. DNA. Then he says, hold it first. Hold it fast, but hold it first. How much priority do you value and value do you place on this word? Do you hold it first? You know, in some countries, we can't give these things away fast enough. Our biggest dilemma is whether to choose hardcover or paperback, leather-bonded or top-green, black, brown, burgundy, teal, dusty rose, wedgewood, blue, or camo, KJV, RSV, NEB, NIV, TLB, NLT, NASB, ESV, you name it, we've got the choice, right? Red letter or plain, center column reference, side margin. Large print, small print, thin line, slim line, trim line, or online. Then it's a question of iPad, iPhone, you know, Android, or Kindle. And on and on and on it goes. And then once we finally decide what we want, we charge it and we shelve it. We don't read it. What's that about? Be honest. How worn is your Bible? Spurgeon said it best. He said a Bible which is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. We need to hold it fast, hold it first, and finally we need to hold it forth. Learn it, live it, and offer it to other people. Not only does it guide our lives, but as we apply it, we become the guides to the spiritually blinded world who is squinting and searching for hope. That's what Paul says in verses 14 to 16. Oswald Chambers once said, my worth to God in public is who I am and what I am in private. How's your spiritual integrity? Have you been a victim of group numbing? Have you found yourself going along with the crowd, ignoring what you know to be right? Friends, don't let the light that should be shining out of your life be eclipsed by the positioning of a shifting culture. Shine for others to see. Shine for others to see. I go back to the statement that I made early, earlier to go along with the image behind me. Whether or not anyone else is doing what is right, I will, regardless of what it costs, regardless of how it feels, regardless of who is listening. And you will shine if you do that.